Well, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about these I am statements that are in the Bible. And we were going to look at several more this summer. But we looked at the, the idea that God is our shield as we began, where Abram was called by God uh, to go and go to the promised land. Then we looked last week at that conflict between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban. Uh, and what a, a crazy situation he found himself in with all that mess. And in the middle of all that, God shows up and says, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to be your shield and take you uh, to the place. I'm going to be your, your guide to carry you to where you need to be. And although Jacob had a pretty checkered past, God says, I'm going to use you anyway. And I don't know about you, but I find real promise in that and encouragement in that. Today, we're going to still be talking about Jacob, but we're going to skip down a few months down to uh, after he and his family have returned to the promised land. And if you remember, he left because he had a conflict with his brother. It seemed like Jacob had lots, lots of conflict in his life. But, but he, uh, had a, uh, he had stolen from his brother his birthright, and he had really made a mess out of things. And so when he went back, he was really worried that his brother would attack him. And instead, his brother embraced him and welcomed him home from that land he had been in. But as they entered the promised land, there's a little of a seer event in, in the, the chapter 34 that we're not going to look at, but, but kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen here. It's a situation where um, one of uh, Jacob's daughter, uh, his daughter named Dinah, uh, had been defiled by one of the local guys, a guy named Hamor, uh, a Hivite. They were descendants of Ham, cursed by God. All that, but anyway, this incident caused a situation where the sons of Jacob retaliated uh, and and used God's covenant uh, act to bring on retribution to those guys, and it really put them in a situation. You're going, well, well you, you want to get even, don't you? Well, maybe uh, when you're only about seventy folks. Uh, and the land is full of people who are not like you, you really don't want to stir up trouble. But that's what they found themselves in the midst of. And that sets the stage for this passage this morning where God does something pretty amazing. I'm calling this God, it's I am almighty, and we're going to dig into that word because that's a a deep word, a big word. But let's look at the passage together uh, before we do that. Look at uh, Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak near uh, below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. 
And the land that I gave to Abram and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. There's five things I want you to see, but let's have a word of prayer first. Father, we pray that as we look at this text, you would show us what it means to have you as our God Almighty, as the Hebrew would have phrased it as our El Shaddai. The one who stands before us, the one who provides for us, the one who takes care of us and nurtures us. God, we thank you for your love and blessing. God, show us what we can learn from this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Five parts of it I want you to see before we try to apply it. First of all, Jacob does something uh, after all of this uh, rigmarole with uh, uh, the the locals and the, the situation with his daughter and all that mess. Jacob looks at his family and says, he calls for commitment. He says it's time to to get with it. He calls for commitment. So as Jacob and his family are trying to establish themselves in the land, they have this situation with Dinah and this mess that happens with the boys uh, of Leah, actually, who were the ones who were the instigators of it. And they took uh, matters into their hands, and they created a a situation that could have been a lot of a problem for them. But into that moment, God says, I'm still here. And I'm breaking into your life, and I want you to still go to Bethel. Now, remember, Bethel is the place where Jacob had encountered God with the ladder and the, or the stairway, whichever way you want to translate that, uh, when he was leaving to go to find his wife. And he's now coming back to this place some 20 years or so later to be in this place. And God says, I still want to meet with you there. But before you can do that, Jacob says, we need to do some spiritual cleaning. We need to clean house. And you're going, what's he talking about? Well, you've got to realize that when Jacob married Leah, surprisingly enough, and then ended up marrying Rachel later, uh, they were not uh, of the tribe that, uh, uh, that was committed to God. They had various uh, household gods. And you're thinking, that's weird. We don't have that. No, we really don't have that in our day, do we? We don't have idols set up in our living room. Well, maybe we do. Anyway, um, just around Super Bowl time, don't we? We've got we to watch. But anyway, we, we, they had these uh, the, the things that they would have in the house, and that meant they would carry those idols with them. And when they, when they escaped from uh, Laban, uh, unbeknownst to Jacob, uh, Rachel had brought with her some of these, these pagan gods with her. And what Jacob is calling the family to do is to say, we've got to put that stuff aside. We've got to let that stuff go. They've got to go away. We've got to be committed to the God who has led me to this point, who has brought us through these things, who has brought me to this place. Remember, this was the place where Jacob had wrestled with God before. This is the place where he had encountered God, and he, he, he wanted to be with him. And so Jacob doesn't ask for input. He just says, hey, family, it's time to clean house. Well, he's not talking about vacuuming the tent, okay? He's talking about spiritually here, to be committed to God. And the family with wives, his wives in particular, they turned all these things over and said, all right, we're ready to go. We're ready to be committed. We're ready to be a part of this. We're ready to do the thing. And we're ready to enter this new day and this new place that God has for us. Second thing we see in the story is this, that Jacob was also covered by God. And you think, well, that's, that's kind of nice. No, it's actually a big deal because they were not yet where they needed to be, but God was bringing them to that place. And to get there, they had to go on a road trip. You know, they didn't pack up the 
the, the, the suburban and drive across town, obviously, but they did have to travel as a group. It means they had to carry their, their sheep and their flocks and all the family and all their belongings and all the tents and all the things. And as you're moving, it's kind of a vulnerable time, especially if you've had some conflict with some of the neighbors in the area, which is what they had had. So they've made this decision to put aside the pagan gods, and God covers them. Look at the way it phrases it in verse 5. He says, A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. That's an important thing. You think, well, God's protecting them. He's giving them a place to travel. This terror from God falls on this. It allows them to not be attacked, not to be abused, not to be trampled upon, trampled upon. And then they get to the place they're supposed to be. Jacob comes to Luz. That's the old name for Bethel. Remember we talked last week, Bethel is a compound word. It's the, the house of God. El is God. Beth is worship, the house. And so they're there to worship in this place and to gather in this place. And they're gathering here and they want to be in this place. And God is going, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to move you, but I'm going to cover you to get you there. I'm going to take you through this process and protect you. And then we find another encounter with God. And this is where we get to our I am statement, by the way. I guess it comes up here in a moment. Jacob appears, excuse me, God appears to Jacob. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram. That's the uh, ancient name for Iraq today. And blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel will be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now notice what's going on here. You go, okay, he got a new name. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. But catch what's going on here. Jacob and his tribe have arrived at Bethel where they're going to establish, reestablish, if you want to put it that way, the altar of the worship of God. And God brings into Jacob's life a major encounter. Now, notice what happens here. It's big, but you kind of got to know a little bit more about names than we sometimes grasp on the surface. God blesses Jacob, and then he renames Jacob. And you're going, so what? Jacob... Uh, his name means, Jacob's name means, deceiver or trickster. <laughs> you think back to some of the things he did with his brother? Hmm, very appropriate name. He tricked his brother, he deceived his brother, he stole from his brother. Not a, not a, not a real role model if you want to, to go there. But he renames him Israel. You're going, so what? Israel means this, one blessed by God. What God is telling Jacob is, no longer are you going to be a trickster, a deceiver, one who destroys and damages and hurts. Now you're going to be one who is blessed by God. In many ways, he's being renamed to remind him that he's been favored by God, that he's been chosen by God, he's been selected by God to be the father of a great nation. And what God is doing here is setting him on a new path in front of him with a great future. He says, I've got a plan for you. God was at work in the life of this man in such who had such a checkered past. Well, let me just say, I don't know what your past is like. And we'll get to this a little bit deeper in a moment. But sometimes we think to ourselves, God can't use me because of my past. God can't use me because of my issues. God can't use me because of whatever. I'm here to remind you that God can use anybody he wants to. He takes Jacob and says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to take you in a new direction. 
And he says, I'm going to work with you. And he calls us to be a part of those things. And, and, and these kind of moments, I think, are important that we are able to look back and see those pivotal moments when we change, when God transforms us, when he calls us and says, I've got something for you. And you're thinking, well, do I need a new name? Maybe. But I can guarantee you, if you don't know Jesus, the one who is going to come from all this process, you, you haven't had that change. And God calls out to us and says, I want to give you a new name. I want to give you a new identity. I want to change you. And then notice what happens. And I, I shifted in the outline intentionally so you can see this, the shift that Jacob becomes Israel. Israel is now a different person. He has got a new identity. He's got a new direction. And God says to him, catch this, I am God Almighty. That's the Hebrew phrase, El Shaddai. Y'all remember the song from years ago, some of us who are older, uh, what was her name, Amy Grant, saying, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. You remember that song? I just, that was, we repeated it twice. That's the phrase here, okay? I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply, and a nation and a company of nations will come out from you, and kings shall come out from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken. God says, I am Almighty. Now, I've got to tell you, I've heard that song as a, as a teenager. I've heard that phrase over the years, God Almighty. But I have never really spent time digging into the Hebrew word, El Shaddai. So this week, I spent a little time in, in English commentaries, but I also did some research over into... Jewish thought and their thinking on the word. I'm thinking, okay, these are Jews who wrote, let's see what they were saying. It's a very multifaceted word. You think, almighty, I understand almighty, move on. Oh, no, I want you to catch this because there's more to it than just he's mighty. One of the images that we want to put in our head here, I think, is the, the obvious one. He's a mountain. Have you ever driven across country, headed towards, say, Colorado? And uh, you come up, and all of a sudden you look off in the distance, and you see the mountains, and you think, those things are pretty big, right? Until you get closer, and you realize, oh, those things are really big. That's the visual, okay? God Almighty, he's a rock. He stands towering over us. He's able to stand strength and power and mighty and might and, and glorious. He's amazing. That's one aspect of this word. According to Jewish scholars... There's another side to this that, that, that might make us a little mm, uncomfortable, but I don't think it has to. It's the idea of a mother nurturing her infant child. And you're going, wait, big mountain, strong, powerful, but also very tender. I don't think you have to put a female image on God to make this make sense, okay? And I don't think we need to because the Bible is very clear that God is our father. He's never described as our mother, okay? But think about a father. It's a great day to talk about fathers, being Father's Day. The importance of a father stepping into the lives of their child doing what? Nurturing their child, taking care of their needs, walking alongside them. Now, does it look different than with a mother? <laughs> Absolutely, Right? But with a father, you step into your kid's life and you do what? You, you lead through discipline, through guidance, through, through encouragement, through correction, through teaching. And that's the visual that we have here. Now, with all of that in mind, here's what God does. 
He says, I'm going to covenant with you. I'm going to stand with you. It's a dad. It's a father standing strong. See, God doesn't just deserve our worship and respect because he's almighty. He also provides this intimacy in our lives. And God speaks into Israel's life with a promise that says, I'm going to do something through you that you could never begin to imagine on your own. That's the visual I want you to grasp that God has for us. That God covenants with us and works with us and walks with us. Now, in time, Jacob, Israel, would end up having 12 sons. You remember the one, the next to youngest one was the one who ended up down in Egypt. A guy named Joseph, and he had a couple of sons, and they come back, and they have been established a nation out of that. And God brings out of this little group an entire nation. And through that entire nation, he brings who? Jesus. Almighty. Doing something amazing. These, shots, these thoughts are shared with Jacob. Now God goes up from the place and Jacob is left standing here going, what's next? That's where we come to number five. Israel then consecrates the place. Uh, in our day and age, we don't have a lot of holy places and a lot of holy space. Maybe we should. But he does this. Look what Jacob does. And he still referred both names in the Bible, so don't get confused when you see Jacob or Israel. It's the same guy. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, the house of God. What we have here is the aftermath of an encounter with I am. If you remember, if you go all the way back, and we didn't look at the passage in in detail in our services this summer, but if you look back, Jacob in that moment when he had finished having the encounter with God and wrestled with God and worshiped with God in the stairway, the, the ladder to heaven, all those kind of things, he had set up a pillar then and worshiped because he knew it was a holy place, and he did that. Now he's back in the exact same place, a place that's probably been 20 years has passed. Whatever he set up years ago has deteriorated. He says, now we're going to reestablish this worship. We're going to set up this place. And he does something that to you and me is just kind of weird. He puts a pillar up. You're going, okay, why would you do that? It's a marker. It's a reminder. Then he does two acts that really are foreign to us in our style of worship and those kind of things, but I think we need to grasp it. He says... He, he poured out a drink offering. A what? We don't. Have you ever? Have you all forget your drink offerings this morning? Did you bring them to church with you? We don't do that, right? We don't have that act anymore. And then he pours oil on it. You're going, okay? Does he know what the cost of oil is? Really? We're going to do that? It's so foreign to us. We're going, what? In the so we sometimes will just gloss over this and move on. Okay, he made the place of worship and it's cool. Now, I want you to see this because what he does here is pretty amazing. Think back to that moment where you met God the first time here. God's going to do something. Now God's going to reinstitute and going to continue to work through him. And he's going to have this. And, and we're not familiar with these things, but a drink offering is one that is poured out before the Lord. Now, catch the visual. What was in the pouring? Most likely it was some kind of fruit of the vine. Was it 
grape juice? Was it wine? Was it uh, a juice box? I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The item is not the point. The act is the point. He pours out on top of that. You're going, okay, Patrick, you're digging too deep in this one. Hang in there. Hang in there. Because ultimately what he's doing is foreshadowing to the day when Jesus Messiah would be, you know, with me, poured out. His blood would be shed for us. And then he pours oil on it as an anointing. You're going, we don't do anointing in Baptist churches, do we? Well, this Baptist pastor does. Uh, I actually carry anointing oil with me everywhere I go on my keychain. And I've had the opportunity over the last years to occasionally anoint someone with oil and pray for them. Usually on a deathbed situation, that God would just protect them and place his hand on them and carry them through what's to come. And what this is, Jacob is doing is saying, God, this place is going to remind us of your presence. This place is going to be our, our, our place of worship. This is our God Almighty moment where El Shaddai has met with us and we're going to worship with him. We're going to be in his presence. And Jacob says, no longer are we going to call this place Luz. Now, you've got to think to yourself, I bet the locals are going, I don't really want to do an address change at the post office. Why is he changing the name of our town? I don't think he asked. He said, this is what's happening. This is Bethel, the place we worship God. And this location would become the place they would gather for worship for many, many centuries until David would one day establish the temple down at Jerusalem later. But this is the place they would worship, and they would worship God. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, what do we do with this? Three things I want to throw at you. The first one is simply this. If we're going to really serve God, if we're going to really be a focus on God Almighty, El Shaddai, we're going to have to do something in our lives that is reminiscent of what they had to do. And it's this, set aside your false gods. You go, I don't have any false gods. I don't have any temples, golden idols in my house. I remember when I moved to New Orleans, uh, Suburban Texas kid going to school in the city of New Orleans. Oh, my Lord. You're talking about a, a culture shock. You drive around New Orleans, and they have uh, what I would affectionately call Jesus in a coffin or Mary in a coffin, depending on who they really venerated. And you're going, what are you talking about? Have you ever seen these little, they look like a little cough, coffin standing up on against the wall, and inside it is a figurine like that of Mary? If you've ever been in Louisiana, you've probably seen it because it's real common down there. But around our country, it's not real common. And I always thought it was weird. I'm going, who are they worshiping, God or Mary? Who are they worshiping, God or this little statue? And you're thinking, Patrick, we don't do that in our lives. Oh, my friends, we do. We all have a lot of things that get higher priority in our lives than the things of God, don't they? I am almighty, he says. I want to be not one in your life, but I want to be first in your life. I want to be central in your life. I don't want to share attention with anybody else in your life. That's who our God is. Jacob says we're going in a new direction, and the baggage of the past has got to go away. You're probably thinking to yourself, what's it matter if I have other focuses in life? I didn't say it's bad to have a focus in life, but I'm telling you, if you have anything other than Jesus as your first focus, you're missing it. God, I am 
Almighty. Listen to what Paul said to the Hebrews. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me tell you what. If anything is more important to you than God... If anything is more important to you than walking with Jesus, you're missing the greatest blessings in life. And yet we do it all the time, don't we? We allow other things to take attention. Those distractions, those propensities in our lives that take us away, we miss them. Second, I want to ask you to consider this, to treasure every God-sized encounter. Now you're going, well, isn't every encounter in life supposed to be God-sized? In a sense, yes. But I want you to think back for a moment to those spiritual high moments in life. Do you remember those moments? Those moments when you go, man, that was amazing. For some, it was a camp. You went to a youth camp. And you're thinking, man, this is it. I wish we could just live at youth camp all the time. I, I promise you your sponsors would disagree with that sentiment. But the, but but it, it's great. As the kids go to children's camp, they come home with no voices. They're going, this is just amazing. We want to stay here forever, you know. But can you do that? We can't do that, can we? But we do need to treasure those moments. We need to, to remember those moments. We need to mark those moments and to, to put down a pillar, if you will, and, and to anoint them with oil and say, God, thank you for that moment. I, I remember a time, and I think I've shared this before years ago, but I remember when I was just starting out in the ministry, I was serving a church in Temple, Texas, uh, and I was the part-time youth minister. You know what that means, don't you? You, you get paid part-time, you work full-time. That's a part-time job in a church because... There is no such thing as part-time. They just You work all the time because that's what you do. Glad to do it, happy to do it, okay? But I remember I, I was really struggling with, is this really what God has for me? And I remember one afternoon I was at the church building, and uh, that auditorium had no windows, none. So you turn the lights off, it was like a cave. You know what I'm talking about? And I remember I turned on just the light on the Lord's Supper table, and I, I went down to the front, and I just spent some time praying and contemplating that moment, And in that moment, I received a clarity that said, from God that said, this is what I have for you. And I said, but you know, I could go sell furniture with my dad and make some good money. I could go become an attorney and make some good money. I could go do something and I have to deal with some of these folks in the church. You know, they had people in their church too that were sometimes difficult to get along with. We got them. You know, every church I've served has got them. Praise Jesus, because those are people that were supposed to be here for, right? But here's the thing. You go, God, is this what it is? And I remember clearly that voice, not audibly, but in my spirit saying, yes, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Keep on keeping on. We need to make those markers in our lives. We need to celebrate those God-sized encounters in our life. Don't take those moments lightly when they come. And when they do, set the moment up. Listen to Psalm 77 again. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I've got to tell you, there's some days I'd like you to stay in the darkness of the Heights Baptist Church Auditorium. Just worshiping God. But you can't do that. You've got to get up and go on. And then third, here's the last one. It's a challenge. Properly respond to God. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean respond the way I did. I'm not the foundation for response to God. 
God is the foundation for response to God. You look at what he did here, Jacob, Israel did at Bethel, you kind of go, man, that's kind of weird. It kind of is to our culture. But God had brought him back to the same place where some years before God had spoken to him with this ladder stairway thing and said, I am your God. I'm going to work in you. And this happens, when this happens, it's an utterly amazing step because God steps into our existence once again as almighty. To you and me, we look at that and go, man, that's weird. Is he thinking we need to set up a pillar in our yard somewhere? Hey, you know what? If God breaks into your life this afternoon at 3 o'clock when it's 142 degrees outside and speaks to you, it may just be the heat. Or if God actually does speak to you, that may be a place you need to set up a marker that says, this is where God spoke in my life. And remember that moment. Pour out a drink offering. Anoint the rock. And say, God, I'm going to keep remembering what you've done, and I'm going to respond to you. Notice the way he responds. And you haven't probably caught it just yet, but let me point it out with the little time I've got left. What he does is this. He worships God. You know, I wonder sometimes if we have these moments with God, and we go, hey, God, thanks, man. I'll get back with you later. When the God of the universe, when God Almighty, El Shaddai, enters into your life, into my life, the proper response is not to go, man, that's a good thought. Man, that just touches my soul. But it's to worship. And to respond to him in that moment. With our entire being, to surrender ourselves to him. Like the old prophet said, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the plot be cut off from the fold, and there no herd in the stalls, yet I will what? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I want us to be people who one experience God on a regular basis, but also be people who respond to God in worship and to praise him for his work in us as God Almighty. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some way. We want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you need to make a decision you've already made public. Maybe you need to become part of this fellowship because you haven't done it yet. We want to give you that opportunity today. But let's have a word of prayer and then we'll have this time of invitation. Father God, we thank you for loving us, for blessing us, and for speaking to us through your word. We pray for those, Lord, who maybe need to respond in some way today that you'd give them that faith to take the step they need to. And we pray that you'd bless them as they do. We thank you for this day that we've allowed us to worship together. Lord, as we sing, let us worship in Jesus' name.